Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have a very special guest, Danny Lennon from Sigma Nutrition. Danny is a legend in the evidence-based nutrition space. He is somebody who I have looked up to for a long time, somebody who I have studied from and and really looked to for quality information inside the evidence-based community for honestly years now. He's actually one of the OGs in the podcasting game when we think of nutrition and training podcasts in general. Um, He has been podcasting since 2014 on this stuff uh, before podcasts were really popular, which we kind of dive into a little bit today. So I highly recommend you go check out his podcast. I'm going to link that in the show notes. Uh, It is Sigma Radio. He has a very diverse uh, population of, of guests that he interviews. It's really, really cool because every time he interviews somebody... It's somebody different, uh, a new researcher, a new coach, a new strategist, somebody who is implementing some new cool thing inside training, nutrition, sleep, health, so on and so forth. And you're always going to get really high quality uh, information. So it's it's definitely a podcast that you'll want to listen to if you enjoy the training and nutrition geeky side of things, the science side of things. And today we're going to dive into something called chrononutrition. So it's it's the relation of really everything inside of our body in regards to the circadian rhythm and our sleep cycle. So looking at the different sleep cycles, the different phases our bodies go through, training, nutrition, hormones, metabolism, food, meal timing, everything you can imagine that relates to circadian rhythm and our circadian biology and allows our body to adapt and change the way it does. So you're going to see a lot of really, really cool stuff in here. I'm going to also link a couple things from Danny, a a full free lecture that he did on this topic, as well as a new article on Stronger by Science that goes massively in depth into what we talk about today. So after you listen to the show, if you enjoy what we talk about, make sure you go check out both of those resources because they provide so much extra information and content in this topic. Um, But it's a really fascinating topic, not only because it is backed by science and it's emerging in the the recent literature, as in it's being studied as we speak and it's growing and growing, but it's also really fascinating because it is pushing against the status quo. And it's not saying that calories aren't important. Um, In fact, it's just proving they are but rather how we look at calories and how we manipulate those calories and and the advantages we can take by manipulating things to get more out of those calories, so to speak, burn more calories per day, ingest more calories per day without negatively influencing our body. Um, And just the idea or the informative decision that you can make in order to time your meals differently, time your sleep differently, look at light and dark exposure differently, and really optimize your body. If we're considering optimizing all aspects of our body, not just health and longevity, but also our body composition as well as performance, 
this is kind of the podcast you want to listen to. Danny is the guy you want to go to and chrono nutrition is something you want to look into in order to be able to do just that. So I'm not going to rant any further. This is a topic that I've been really, really fascinated by lately. I've been diving into a lot of information, research and content regarding um, a lot from Danny, actually. So I was really, really thankful to have him on the podcast for you guys to listen to him talk on this topic. So without any further ado, let's get on this episode. And I have to say real quick, guys, if you enjoy this podcast and if you really take away a lot from this episode, it would mean the world to me if you could take a screenshot of this show, post it on your story on Instagram and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and make sure you tag Danny at Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. We want to see who is listening to this podcast. We want to thank you and we want to share it on our story as well. So again, without any further ado, Let's get on to this unbelievably informative episode with the one and only Danny Lennon from Sigma Nutrition. All right, Danny Lennon, I'm excited to have you, man. As I was just talking to you about off the air, you were one of the original, um, I would call evidence-based podcasts that I've ever really listened to and started really gathering a lot of information from. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were one of the original just nutrition, evidence-based nutrition podcasts out there, period. You've been doing it for quite a while, correct? Right. So the podcast started in early 2014 for me. So I got in before that kind of wave of podcasts. And so a lot of it was was just very good timing because obviously now podcasting has exploded. But yeah, at that time, there were other nutrition, I would say related or health related podcasts, but certainly nothing with what we've come to understand as the evidence-based practice side of nutrition. Um, and certainly nothing talking with nutrition researchers about their work specifically and applying that in an evidence-based context, or at least that I was aware of. And so, yeah, the the timing and things kind of worked out well that people started realizing, hey, these podcasts are pretty cool to listen to. So it worked out well. Yeah, it's been super helpful for me in my career, as I, as I was telling you about. And for those listening, I always get the question of like where to find good research, where to find good information. Um, and I often refer to places like uh, Mass Research Review and stuff like that. But anybody listening, go check out Sigma Nutrition Radio because it, you do a really, really good job of having a very diverse, uh, I guess just the people you interview in general are so mm. diverse. Like every time I, uh, I see a new podcast upload, it's a different researcher in a different field within the nutrition realm. And it's just so cool because there's so much you can take away from it. Um, which kind of leads me into the first question that we should probably start with is just your background. Like, can you give the listeners kind of in a nutshell of who you are, the company you run, and, and how it all was kind of created? Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose the most important uh, bullet points they should probably know is, as you mentioned, my company is Sigma Nutrition. I've been running that for about six or so years at the moment. And we aim to put out evidence-based information on nutrition and health science. Primarily, what we've become known for is the podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio that we've just discussed, where I mainly talk with researchers and practitioners in that field. But we also have articles, other informational services and products that are available. Um, I do quite a bit of speaking at conferences and seminars, things like that. And we also have a coaching side to our business too. In terms of my own background, I have a master's degree in nutritional sciences, but previous to that, I actually did my undergraduate degree in biology and physics and actually was a high school teacher in those subjects for a year before realizing I don't really like being within the school system. I don't like disciplining kids. I don't like trying to get people to listen to me with that they want to listen to me. And just, I think at that point, start to realize that I had tendencies that probably lent myself better to uh, an entrepreneurial endeavor where I could 
go that side of things as opposed to being within a certain system. And so a lot of my time uh, as just a hobby in my spare time around then was reading nutrition research. And so I was like, maybe I'll just give a go at this and went back to university and got my master's in nutrition and things took off from there. But yeah, that's the kind of general bullet points that maybe uh, are, are worth uh, touching on, but I'm happy to go in depth in, in any direction you want if there's anything you want to explore. Uh, but that's a bit about me. Yeah, just I think the thing I would like to explore is just uh, uh, kind of the role education plays inside the client-coach relationship and how important that is. I think as – so I started eight or nine years ago training people. <clears throat> I don't have a deep academic background like you do. So when I was engulfed into it, I was more engulfed into the strength training realm, um, a lot of old school thinking, and at least on this side of the world, because I'm in the United States, I'm in Seattle, boot camp was like the biggest thing. There was just boot camps everywhere, group fitness mm. everywhere, functional, quote unquote, fitness everywhere. And it, there, was no, uh, there wasn't a lot of evidence-based practices. There wasn't a lot of science being engulfed into it. And I feel that like as I kind of went through my evolution as coach, I started seeing more and more people pop into the space like you who did have an academic background and were kind of like, it, it's funny that you almost steered away from the nutrition, then you came back into it and you brought the mm. academic, you brought the education into it. And I feel like, and I'd love your opinion on this, so much more of that has happened over the last decade that it's really making a big push and emphasis towards the evidence, towards education. And now it's like almost empowering clients to learn enough to do this on their own without a coach. And I think that's like the main goal. Um, and it's just been a really, really cool thing to see. And I think you have a big role in that being one of those experts. Um, so I just get, like to get your opinion on that and how you saw that transition kind of happen as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's definitely been a big wave of momentum in that direction. And that could just be because we're within that circle that maybe we're biased by the people that we tend to look at. And it seems like it's a big more of a push than it is. But I definitely think it's a lot better than it was a few years back. Like you say, I think even the term evidence-based was never even really used within coaching circles, never mind people in the, the general population looking for a coach that was actually working on, on science-based principles. And a, a lot of the time there can be a lot of pseudoscience at play. So it's very difficult for people to actually see what is legitimate and not. So I think there's definitely been more value placed on that. I think sometimes it, there's been, um, I, I worry that in certain cases it's now almost becoming a buzzword that people are trying to use the term evidence-based or they're an evidence-based coach without really understanding or caring what evidence-based practice is and just because they they know it sounds good to be evidence-based no one wants to claim that their work is not based on anything so but but i do think there could be a problem of people wanting to use that label as opposed to really caring about what matters so why do we want to use evidence-based practice all evidence-based practices is first starting from a position of well we have to make decisions about what we're going to do and we should probably make those decisions based on what is has the highest probability of being accurate because we can never have 100% certainty on anything. But what is most likely going to have benefit for this person? And the way to work that out is, is, I think, starting from a position of, okay, what different sources of evidence do we have about a particular intervention or training modality or whatever it is? Let's weigh all of that up and which would be 
most likely to get a benefit in this particular context. But from there, also having the flexibility to realize that might not work for everyone and we can change and we can use our own personal experience. We can use the anecdote of what that individual client is reporting back to us. And they're all parts of that element, uh, evidence-based paradigm of being able to use your coaching experience and be able to use one-off trial and error that you use with an individual person. But it's layered in with an understanding of on average, most of the time, what is most likely to get us a result. So I think, number one, understanding that is important. And then I also think it's important for people who are um, interested in a science-based approach or an evidence-based approach is to realize that doesn't just extend to the nutrition principles you're going to apply or the strength conditioning principles you're going to apply. There's also lots of lines of evidence you can look on of how to actually elicit behavior change, for example, right? What act, what types of um, communication works with people? What type of way of imparting information can work in order to elicit behavior change? That's, again, another area that can be looked at in terms of an evidence-based perspective or just randomly trying stuff. So I think it extends beyond just the science of nutrition per se. And so it's great to see that it's growing and it's great to see more people are interested in it, but it's, uh, it's also now becoming a bit trickier for people to work out who is evidence-based and who just says they are. But I think hopefully that will work itself out over time. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, the behavior change is a nice touch that you added in there because it's something that I, I give a lot of credit to John Berardi with, um, the precision nutrition certifications and just everything they've done in the space in general, his new book which is a fantastic book, but the things that they helped elicit into coaching and building that coaching relationship and the human interaction part process of it, I think is so important mm. because a lot of people who use science um, tend to just be macro calculators now. And I think if you don't, and I like the way you, you explained evidence-based too because of this, and I think this is the difference. And again, you can correct me if, if, if you have a different opinion, but the difference between science and evidence or science-based and evidence-based would being okay allowing some of your anecdote or experience to creep into that and what you've noticed people tend to do and not just reading what the science says or just reading what the textbook says when you actually apply. Um, And I think that I, this is what I've taken away from a lot of the people I've learned from over the years is this is why they use the word evidence-based instead of just science or just research is because inside of application, I think a lot of, there's a lot more variability than what we can explain just inside of a research study. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would totally agree on that. And I think one of the big sources of confusion that I see and something that kind of I can get irritated looking at sometimes is I'm sure you've seen this on the internet where someone might be discussing a certain intervention that they've been using with a particular client of theirs. And then you get this person that maybe is really well read with science, but you just know from how they're typing, they have no coaching experience because they'll come in and say, hey, why are you using this low-carb diet with this person? Don't you know that if you match calories and protein, it doesn't matter if it's lower or higher carb? And like, technically, that point is true, but it's almost irrelevant for this one individual, right? That coach may know that, and they may that's in general a premise we can start from, but that doesn't tell us about what we should do with any individual person because there's people that respond differently, there's individual preferences, there's different strategies we can use with people. And so what would be a let's say what should be the default first recommendation we should roll out at a population level is going to be very different to the 
flexibility you have to employ different strategies with individual clients. And so you may have all sorts of different types of strategies, protocols, interventions that you're using with different people within your coaching practice. And you've still started from a place of, it's still evidence-based practice, but you've just found with this individual person what they are going to respond best to and what they're going to prefer and what's going to get them the result is this type of diet. And then for someone else, it's something different. And so understanding that what you do on an individual level is not about uh, saying, what is the one evidence-based diet? Because that doesn't exist, right? It's a set of principles and almost anything can fall under within the right um, context. I love that. I, uh, there's a quote I always, I always butcher it and I say it the wrong way, but I always bring it up in, in situations like this. And I think it's um, it, methods always change, principles never do, or, or something along mm. those lines. And it's kind of that same idea. Like there's so many different ways to employ the evidence. There's so many different methods that vary from person to person. And, and I, I absolutely get frustrated with the same thing with uh, kind of keyboard warriors who are, are just looking in the textbook and they're not really working with people because it, when you add a human being, it's just, it's a completely different ballgame. It just right. it complicates things so dramatically. And I actually think this is a good segue into the topic I wanted to talk to you about today because you mentioned uh, pseudoscience, you mentioned kind of people standing on their high horse saying, oh, calories are controlled, it doesn't matter. Well, this idea of uh, chrononutrition that you've been talking so much about, and I've just, dude, I've been absorbing all of your content on this because it's just a, such a fascinating uh, topic to me. It, it kind of dances on that line in a way because it's like, well, calories just matter. And it's like, well, if we look at circadian rhythm, if we look at this idea of chronobiology and when you're eating meals, like, doesn't matter. And, and now you're kind of throwing a curveball at it and it's backed by research, which is so fascinating. Mm. And I think it's exciting for people like me because I am a geek. So it's like, something different and new that kind of challenges the status quo. Um, but to start this discussion, can you, and as brief as you can, because I know this is this could be a whole podcast by itself, mm -hmm. but like kind of just a brief overview of what the idea of chronobiology and what it is and, and why it matters to the people listening. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And, and just to kind of touch on your previous point, one of the big um, goals for writing that article that, that just went up on Stronger by Science was essentially trying to elicit some critical thinking about some topics that people are looking at in a very black and white way and that have came about from, I think, an overcompensation for other ideas that were wrong. And so I think at the start of the article I mentioned, there have been ideas in the past that are kind of like pseudoscience-y, right? That people saying, you must eat breakfast as soon as you get up in the morning, right? Or that you need to have small regular meals uh, throughout the day to keep your metabolism revved up or don't eat carbs after 6 p.m. because it immediately turns to fat. And so all these ideas were around for a while. And then people are saying, hey, like, these are not really true, right? And so like, we have to push back against it. However, it got to a point where it got boiled down to a message where people were starting to think, oh, like, meal timing doesn't matter. It's just my total daily calories and macros, do it in whatever way you want. And there's no difference. And there's a there's a there's a difference in saying that in general, if your calories and macros are matched on a day-to-day -day basis, and let's say all else is equal, like your activity and your training and your sleep, that there's going to be no real difference in fat loss if that's your goal, or no difference in muscle gain if that's your goal, um, versus saying there is no difference based on meal timing, because that's just not an accurate statement. And one of the ways that we're seeing is through the impact of chrononutrition, which I'll get to in a moment. So that's just some background context of 
Um, it was kind of to push back against this oversimplification, this nihilistic view that I suppose um, some in the, if it fits your macros world could come to of, as long as your macros are right, it doesn't matter how you get them and where you eat them and so on. So the, I, the, this emerging field of chrononutrition is essentially how does our food intake play a role on our circadian biology or circadian rhythms and therefore influence health? And also how do our circadian rhythms within the body influence when it may be better or worse to consume nutrients and therefore impact our health? So there's this kind of bi-directional impact of food intake and impact on circadian rhythms and circadian clocks. Now, circadian rhythms are, there's many biological processes that go on within the human body that run on a circadian rhythm. So a circadian rhythm has kind of two main elements that we should know about. One is that the rhythm is approximately about 24 hours. So we see lots of things that run in an approximate 24-hour cycle. For example, the hormone melatonin, you'll see that it's pretty low throughout the day, starts to rise in the evening time so it surpasses a certain threshold. And one of its functions is to help with the onset of sleep, for example, and then it'll come back down uh, during the night. That's a typical rhythm that just repeats over and over every 24 hours. Same if you look at cortisol, it has a pattern of being um, high in the morning that starts to dip down. And that pattern repeats again every 24 hours. And lots of things within the human body have this circadian or this 24-hour pattern. The other thing that makes a rhythm circadian in nature is that if you were to, say, isolate the cell where that process is going on and it, and it wasn't influenced by any external stimuli, it would still have an approximate 24-hour cycle for that process. So that 24-hour process is endogenous or intrinsic to uh, that rhythm that's running on that circadian clock, which we'll mention in a moment. However, when we think about these processes that are about 24 hours, I say they're about 24 hours because they're not precisely 24 hours. And it can vary from person to person, but on average, we could say, a lot of these processes could have a period of about 24 hours and 15 minutes-ish. At least some of the work has shown that. So because we have this slight mismatch between that endogenous rhythm and our 24-hour solar day, it would make sense that we want to kind of fine-tune or set that rhythm to more an exact 24-hour period so we can have processes running at the time of day that we want them to run, i.e. during the day or at night or et cetera, et cetera. And so we use stimuli that's in our environment to help set those circadian rhythms closer to that 24-hour period. The main thing that helps us set those rhythms is light and dark exposure. So this is a stimulus that we call a, a Zeitgeber, which is uh, essentially fine-tuning that circadian clock to that more precise 24-hour window. So light and dark is the main one, and that sets the central circadian clock, which is located in the brain. But there are also circadian clocks and tissues all around our body. And what we've started to see is that other stimuli can help set those clocks. One of those potential stimuli is nutrient ingestion. And so then this throws up the hypothesis of depending on when we eat, we now have the ability to have nutrients setting or influencing the circadian clocks that control some of these circadian rhythms in different tissues, for example, in the pancreas or in the intestine or in the muscle cell. And so potentially, depending on when we eat, we could have 
our circadian rhythms uh, in alignment. So it's called circadian alignment, where everything is as it should be. Or we can have a mismatch between what's going on in those peripheral clocks and, let's say, our light and dark exposure or the central clocks that are running. And we can cause something called circadian misalignment. And it's been well established that circadian misalignment causes pretty much havoc on every system in the body when you put someone in circadian misalignment. Look at any of the circadian misalignment protocols and research. It's one of the big things that going on with shift work, for example, that people have this circadian shift and circadian misalignment is taking place. So the some of the tenants that are looked at within chrononutrition, there's a, there's a f- kind of a few different ones, and I've kind of I think I broke it into four separate ones that we can maybe get into in a bit more detail if you want. One would be on meal timing, as in what time of the day we, let's say, have our first meal, our last meal. We could look at calorie or energy distribution. So not just the times that we have those, but where in the day are most of those calories consumed? So is it evenly spread? Are we having a higher percentage late? Are we having a higher percentage early? Another aspect would be the feeding fasting cycle. So how long is our feeding window? So time from the first meal to the last meal. And then also there, therefore, how long are, are we fasting? And then the, the f- fourth part would be consistency. So from day to day, does our meal timing look relatively similar? And so the, on those four areas, we can start to look at some research that's emerging that seems to suggest that how we time our meals, how we distribute our energy across the day, and the length of our feeding window can have impacts on definitely on metabolic health. And we see blood glucose in particular is extremely uh, impacted, but also potentially on body composition, which is a really interesting one because this really gets beyond what uh, we'd expect to see that, oh, if we just shift where calories are consumed in the day, is this impacting energy balance in some way? So that's a kind of interesting question too. And we also see impacts on metabolism. So for example, if we eat the exact same meal early in the day versus late in the day, how we metabolize that meal seems to be different. So that's a kind of overview of some of the stuff, but we can we can definitely dive into any of those elements that you want. Yeah, I, I mean, ideally, I'd love to just kind of go through each one. Um, sure. And then at the end, if we can touch on training as well, um, just to kind of tie it in, if that has any role in it. Um, I, I definitely think that the thing that shocked me the most within the nutrition was um, kind of calorie partitioning, like when we are placing the majority of our calories, just because, especially with intermittent fasting becoming so popular um, years ago, the whole concept was fast during the day, eat light, eat heavy at night, go to sleep. And a lot of the research is saying do the exact opposite, um, which I'm sure you're going to kind of dive into and actually like front loading some of your calories instead and maybe stop eating a little bit. Um, earlier in the day versus eating late and fasting late, um, mm. so to speak. But before we dive into the nutrition, can you touch real briefly just on any, uh, I, I think it's obvious that the biggest impact is just sleep in general. And I think people know that like having enough sleep is important. I've had Greg Potters, you might know of, and another sleep scientist mm. on the podcast already. And we've kind of hammered the idea of like, you need to get sleep. Um, awesome. is, is there anything else on sleep that you want to touch on besides just getting enough uh, that has a big role in this that we can just give the listeners as application. Um, and, and to add to that, my, my one question that just kind of popped in my head, just because the time of year it is over here, it's so dark all the time. Like, we, <laughs> like it's dark really late. It gets dark by 4 p.m. Does that have a big role hormonally in the body? Um, does that create misalignment with our circadian rhythm without us being able to control it? 
So on the sleep issue, I, I definitely would advise people to look at a couple of things beyond just trying to get enough because that in itself can be difficult unless we take care of some of the other pieces that actually allow us to get enough, mm-hmm. enough good sleep. One thing that I think is particularly huge is having consistent sleep and wake times or as consistent as it allows. So from day to day that approximately, not exactly, but roughly you are going to bed at about the same time and therefore you have approximately the same wake up time and that consistency from day to day is definitely going to help. One of the things we see in research and Greg might have touched on this is this uh, idea of social jet lag where the typical person who works, let's say a Monday to Friday, nine to five, they're waking up early, going to work, coming home, they're probably getting to bed early because of the work next morning. Then weekend comes around, they stay up later than usual, Friday night, Saturday night, have a lie-in on Saturday and Sunday. And so what you've actually done there is called a circassian shift of maybe several hours from your normal routine. Monday rolls around, but now you can't sleep in, you have to set an alarm early but you've been phase shifted by that change in sleep and wake times. And so people can experience some of these symptoms that are similar to what you would experience with jet lag when you travel across time zones, which is due to circadian shift. You can experience similar symptoms on that Monday. And this has been termed social jet lag by some of the research groups, uh, Till Ronnenberg's in particular. So having regular sleep and wake times as much as practical is probably a good idea. But again, you can still go out now and again and, and enjoy your life. I think beyond that, the typical stuff around sleep hygiene, dark room, cool room, all that type of stuff, which I'm sure uh, the, the guys you've had on the podcast have discussed. With nutrition, one of the things that I think helps sleep is having at least a couple of hours, probably before sleep onset of no food ingestion. We'll, we'll come to the circadian stuff later on, I'm sure. But just from a pragmatic view, a lot of people if they have a, a large meal within those like couple of hours before sleep can experience acid reflux just because they have nutrients they haven't digested yet and now they're lying horizontally and that can cause an issue which would impact uh, sleep. Um, so that's one potential issue. Um, and then the final one, which I'm sure, uh, or, or that actually relates to the light and dark exposure I made earlier and how this role of circadian rhythms a lot of people now are quite familiar with the idea of avoiding blue light close to sleep, right? I don't want to be looking at my laptop or iPad, lots of artificial lights. I'll try and put maybe a blue light filter on my phone, on my laptop. Maybe even people go and get their orange glasses on or, or just try and avoid lots of bright artificial light just before bed, which is all great. But the flip side of that is we actually want a lot of blue light exposure early in the day, and that helps for more robust circadian rhythm. So getting out into daylight is probably a good idea early in the day for whatever time that someone can. And even on a relatively cloudy day with no sun out, the light intensity is going to be multiple fold brighter outside than it would be even with a bright indoor light. So trying to get some uh, daylight exposure during the day is probably or at least anecdotally I found this to be true as well with some of our clients is really useful for helping with onset of sleep um, rather than being inside all day which particularly this time of year is very easy to do right someone's going to work it's dark when they're leaving they're indoors all day and they're coming home and it's dark so trying to limit that there are a few things around sleep uh, for sure Um, and then the other part of your question is a more tricky one that relates to maybe like seasonal impacts of our change in light and dark exposure from 
differences between the summer versus winter, for example. And so to me, it makes some sense that we probably would have had a natural circadian shift uh, evolutionary from those different seasons because we have different periods of time where it's dark and it's bright. Uh, the problem now is that we basically social obligations work and everything else and just artificial lighting and everything else we're doing means that our the times we're going to we have to be awake and doing stuff is no different from summer to winter anyway and so potentially that could cause issues but i think if we do everything else right in terms of um those consistent sleep and wake times allowing enough time in bed um trying to get some daylight exposure i think uh, we can kind of mitigate most of those Got it. Okay. So it's almost majoring in the minor at that point. Um, I like it. Let's, let's kind of dive into each nutritional aspect. Then you had the four, the four specific categories. Um, if you want to just kind of go one by one, I think that'd be perfect. Sure. So I'll, I'll try and just touch on the main important points and, and um, we can provide people with, with references for more stuff if they want to go a bit deeper on meal timing. A few things that I think are quite clear that we do know is that how we metabolize a meal is different from early in the day versus very late in the day. And the closer that gets to biological night, typically worse our metabolism is definitely for carbohydrate and dietary fat. Protein is a bit of an interesting one, which we'll come to in a moment, which might be different. But definitely our carb and fat metabolism um, tends to be worse uh, at biological night. And so this has implications for in a number of cases. One of the obvious ones is eating during the night, as someone may do if they're on shift work. You would see markedly different uh, metabolism responses. And by that, I simply mean uh, their blood glucose excursion after that meal, how high their blood glucose goes and stays, would be a lot worse than that same meal eaten during the day. And we also see differences from, say, morning time to uh, late evening or nighttime. Again, the same meal. And there's been several studies that have looked at this. And one of the, th the things that's playing a role here is changes in insulin sensitivity, which also has a circadian rhythm to it. Starts higher in the day and you get less insulin sensitive as the day goes on. So your insulin sensitivity is lowest late in the evening or at night. And so you have this worse glucose response at that time point. Um, like I said, Protein seems to be able to be fully digested pretty okay during the night, which is a, maybe a, an interesting application for shift workers, which we can come to. But the general take-home is trying to avoid eating at, at biological night or close to it. The exact cutoff is really difficult to prescribe. And this probably depends on, obviously, someone's usual sleep time, what their maybe their chronotype is things like that but probably leaving an easy rule of thumb i would say start with at least leaving maybe two hours before your typical sleep onset of no calorie ingestion is probably a good idea and and then just see where is practical for them uh, for where they're going to have their last meal and also maybe try and not have a very large meal if they do have to eat in the late evening or, or close to bed trying to have something, maybe a high protein snack or meal, but try not to have a very large meal at that time. Uh, just because we know metabolism is, is more screwed up later in the day and instant sensitivity is worse. So that's on, on the meal timing aspect. The other aspect of meal timing is not something that's as clear cut, but makes at least mechanistic sense from a circadian perspective of 
we know that we're trying to match up, uh, let's say, our peripheral and central circadian clocks, or we're trying to match up things like our light and dark exposure with our exposure to feeding and fasting, uh, activity and rest, these different cycles that we move back and forth between, we obviously want to, ideally for human health, we'd have light exposure matched up with the time that we're awake, matched up with the time when we're going to be eating, and then we'd have dark exposure matched up with the time when we're asleep and when we're fasting. So with that idea, you could probably make a case, we get up in the morning, ideally, as I've just said, we'd want to try and get some light exposure early in the day. And it might make some sense to have some sort of nutrient ingestion. So the time frame here is, I, I don't know if we have actually really solid answers to that. I suspect it's not a thing of you need to have breakfast very soon after waking. I think probably having some sort of nutrients in the early-ish part of the day is probably fine. Um, and there's also some evidence suggesting that any nutrient metabolism can have an effect here. So for example, at, uh, metabolizing um, a black coffee seems to have that effect or an Americano. So maybe someone who doesn't want to eat anything but has that, that can still have an entraining effect potentially on some of those circadian clocks to help sync those up. Um, but it's a bit trickier question of when you need to do that. Um, and I'll come back to that maybe on the distribution. As an example for people, anecdotally, again, not anything based by, by science, but typically what I tend to do, and I don't see any problem with it, is I typically tend to wake about 7am, but I don't have my breakfast or first meal probably until 10.30 or 11 uh, on most days. However, it, it tends to be a relatively decent sized meal, and I definitely skew more of my daily calories towards that end of the day versus very late, uh, which we'll come to. But uh, I'm not as worried about eating relatively close to waking up. Um, so just to touch on the breakfast thing there. So beyond the timing piece, um, next, if we look at the energy distribution, which uh, like you said, and I would tend to agree, this is where there's a lot of interesting questions that I find fascinating too, is the idea of if we try and think about two situations where we're looking at the same amount of daily calories, but where they are placed over the day, is it beneficial of how we distribute them or does it matter? And from a, a direct body composition for like calorie control perspective, it probably might not make that much difference, which is why, as you said, one of the th core things around intermittent fasting was, yeah, just don't eat for a lot of the day. You can essentially save up your calories and have them late in the day and you're still hitting your total calorie intake. That's a fine method of trying to limit how many calories you're ingesting. That's a certain goal. And that's like a daily intermittent fasting, lean gains type approach. One thing to be wary of with time-restricted feeding, and I'll talk about more of this in a minute, of having a restricted feeding window, and we see this term time-restricted eating, that is something within research that came from a circadian perspective. So the idea here is not that we're restricting the feeding window in order just to restrict calories, the goal is more circadian based. Can we restrict a feeding window to match up with our daylight hours essentially? And so there's two different goals of having a compressed feeding window. The first of typical intermittent fasting is compressing that feeding window so you can fit just your daily calories into a shorter period of time for either convenience or as a way to restrict calories. Time restricted feeding, however, is done with restricting that window because of metabolic 
health benefits you may get because of impacts on circadian rhythms. So with, with that said, it seems like on the energy distribution, we have a couple of really interesting papers that suggest that it may make a difference. Uh, a couple that I'll mention, one, because it gets mentioned everywhere on, on this particular topic, uh, was published by Daniela Jokubovic, it's a 2013 paper. And they compared two conditions where they dieted people on 1,400 calories a day. They matched their intake, three meals, and the, one was a large breakfast group, so 700 calorie breakfast, 500 calorie lunch, 200 calorie dinner. And the other group was a large uh, dinner group. So just the reverse, 200 calorie breakfast, 500 calorie lunch, uh, 700 calorie dinner. And so in that study, they found a significant uh, difference in not only some of the metabolic markers, but in weight loss between those two groups, like, like a, a really large amount that I don't think is totally just explained by circadian. I, th I think there was probably behavioral impacts there too and some other stuff going on but at least it's suggestive that when people are prescribed the same number of calories there may be a difference on where we place those calories across the day so to try and work out what's going on there and is it actually due to circadian biology and anything mechanistically going on one paper that i think is quite instructive was published by james betts it was a part of the bath breakfast project in the uk and they compared a group that was to have a large breakfast. So they had to eat more than 700 calories before, I think, 11 a.m. in the day versus a group that had to fast until at least 12 p.m., so until midday. Um, and then they, both groups could kind of eat as they wished throughout the day. Now, what they saw in that study was, and this is quite consistent with most intermittent fasting research, is that the group that fasted until 12 actually ate less calories than the other group. So they had, I think, about 400-ish less calories across the day. So the group that had the large breakfast ate those calories more. However, both groups maintained their weight during the study. And so when they look at this, they, they, were, they tracked energy expenditure in, in this study. And that large breakfast group expended that extra 400 calories or so um, across the day from having that skewed eating. So even though they ate more, it didn't lead to any weight gain. And obviously, if we were to pick that we're going to be on a, a weight maintenance diet, it would be preferential to be eating one where we can eat more food, in, in my estimation. Also, then it, we could probably extrapolate out to say, if we were controlling daily calories as opposed to eating ad libitum, would eating more of those calories early in the day lead us to expend more energy? And so when you look at that study, what they actually found was the group that had that uh, large breakfast saw an increase in their energy expenditure, and that was mainly explained by an increase in very low intensity activity. So, not programmed exercise, just movements throughout the day that there were uh, that kind of just happened subconsciously. It gets ramped up, and they were moving around a bit more throughout the day, and so that gives us some idea that maybe then, depending on how we distribute calories, if that does indeed increase energy expenditure by a relatively significant amount, as we saw in that BET study, and we'll need more studies to replicate this. But if that is indeed the case, then we could say, well, just shifting around when we consume our calories, uh, we could have a diet of the same number of calories, but one is going to lead to either more weight loss if those people are in a deficit, or 
uh, we can have someone maintaining their weight on more calories than another condition because they're expending more. So it's not doing anything magical that gets around energy balance. Energy balance equation is still holding true here. It's just that how we distribute those calories may lead to an increased energy expenditure if they're pushed early in the day. And there's a couple of groups that are doing more research on that right now. So hopefully we have some more answers in the area. But that's at least one hypothesis. Uh, the consistency thing is, is pretty straightforward. We see that people that eat erratically, so drastically different feeding times day to day and a drastically different meal frequency day to day tend to have poor outcomes in terms of um, glycemic control and metabolic health markers than if we have relatively consistent meal times. And then the final one, which is a bigger area that which we can maybe talk about is the whole time-restricted eating slash time-restricted feeding uh, protocol, which essentially is compressing our feeding within a certain window that could be eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever. And we eat all our uh, meals within that period of time. And the rest of the time is obviously fasting. And that is has been pretty consistent in most trials of, of showing benefit. Uh, number one, for inducing weight loss through reducing caloric intake a lot of the time. And then in non-weight loss trials, seems to also be beneficial for, again, more of those metabolic health markers into like blood glucose, fasting insulin, and so on. So a time-restricted feeding protocol looks very promising. One of the big things from a pragmatic perspective is that a time-restricted eating protocol is relatively simple in terms of how to do it and set it up. You don't need to have a lot of education behind it to start doing it. And in fact, a lot of those trials actually only gave their participants one recommendation to, can you change your time of your first and last meal to these, right? So one, one pilot trial told them to delay their breakfast by an hour and a half, pull their last meal up by an hour and a half. And that was the only recommendation, nothing about food, how much to eat, what to eat. And we can, and they saw a benefit over the course of those 10 weeks in terms of eating less calories, losing weight, improvements in uh, blood glucose, et cetera. So that's an interesting area that there's a lot we can, we can probably get into. Um, but overall, I would say that it seems that um, having some sort of restriction on your feeding window is a good idea. How many hours that should be, we don't really know yet. Is it better to be eight than 10? Is nine better than 11? Is eight better than 12? Like we, we don't really know. But on average, it seems a lot of people in the population are just eating all day from when they get up to the evening with a 15 to 16 hour eating window, pretty typical. And I think a lot of people would have benefits from reducing it, let's say to 12 hour window, right? Have your first meal at 8 p.m., 8 a.m. and finish at 8 p.m. That restriction, that window uh, alone would probably have benefits for several reasons. One of those would be circadian, but I also think behaviorally, reducing of snacking, reducing of the opportunities to eat, um, et cetera, they can be beneficial. Um, so yeah, hopefully it wasn't too much of a ramble and that was some way useful, but uh, yeah, happy to let you jump in here for a moment. I think that was perfect, man. That was like Corona Nutrition 101. It like literally covered <laughs> every aspect. Um, a couple questions that I would have in return because you did really good. I had a list, but you kind of knocked them out as you were going, which is perfect. Um, one, just because I know we'll get this question and I think it helps for application sake, is kind of differentiating uh, uh, time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting a little bit. 
And in that regards, uh, a, a question just on your opinion, the 16-8 lean gains approach has been popular for years now. Mm. Do you think, A, if you flip that and say, wake up, eat, and still follow 16-8, we'd have more benefits from it? And then B, to, to follow that up, there's a lot of people, and, and sometimes it almost seems like pseudoscience, that talk about these hormonal and metabolic benefits that come from intermittent fasting. The, the research they're using to back themselves up and, and what they're referring to, do you think that's actually more linked to time-restricted feeding, not intermittent fasting? Intermittent fasting is more of just an adherence tool to mm-hmm. cut calories? Sure. So probably the first thing I would do in a conversation around intermittent fasting is um, define exactly what type of protocol we're discussing because intermittent fasting gets used to describe several different types of interventions within a lot of research. So it's almost like an umbrella term for it could be a daily 16-8 fast, which would be very similar to a time-restricted feeding protocol. And that would be essentially like a lean gain style, have a feeding window and your fasting takes place every day for a certain number of hours. But a lot of the research is based on alternate day fasting models, which is fasting every second day and then having like an ab libidum eating day every second, um, every other day. Uh, You would, you could have a 5-2 diet, which is two days of the week is a fasting day. And then the others are eating as normal. Uh, There is extended or prolonged fasts, which you can see not as much literature, but you do see some where people would extend that fast for several days, for example, and you, you can even go longer and uh, at least in, in clinical practice or anecdotally people trialing stuff have definitely done much more uh, long fasts. So these are all different types of fasting regimens that can be used where I think in popular everyday use, particularly within the fitness field, when people refer to intermittent fasting, they tend to talk about a daily intermittent fast, I find. And like you said, most commonly, that tends to be a 16-8 fast. And again, most commonly, the, it seems to be favored to skip breakfast and start that first meal at the middle of the day and then be able to consume more later in the day. That seems to be, I think, the preference for most people that do it. Um, Again, it's not necessarily that that's wrong for their objective. It just depends on what they're aiming for, right? A lot of the time, if they're doing that as a way to, hey, I'm trying to diet, and I find if I skip breakfast and have my first meal at 1 p.m. and have this 16-8 lean gain style approach, I find it easier to stick to less calories. So they're using it as a tool for caloric restriction. If that's their only goal, then that's fine because it allows them to achieve it. Um, If we're talking about impacts on health via impacts on circadian biology again theoretically i could make a case for it might be better to have a earlier versus later feeding window but when it comes to actual evidence on this is the truth is we still really don't know there's been one trial that came out this year i think amy hutchinson was the lead author on this uh, which was one of the few papers to compare an early time-restricted feeding protocol to a delayed or a late uh, time-restricted feeding protocol. So in that study, they had a nine-hour feeding window. The early was, I think, uh, 8 a.m. until 9, or 5 p.m. And then the delayed or late protocol was 12 p.m. until 9 p.m., which would be kind of similar to that kind of lean gain style. And in that study, at least, 
they didn't really find much significant difference at the end of that. I think the only metric that was significantly different was uh, mean 24-hour blood glucose, but it wasn't by a, a big margin. It was, it was statistically significant, but not crazy different between them. And everything else was pretty similar. Now, that's not to say there are no differences because, uh, again, uh, based on mechanisms, I would have hypothesized that there would have been a, a slight benefit for an early time-restricted eating uh, protocol. And I still think uh, that there may be, but we just need to see more trials directly comparing those two. So based on current evidence directly looking at that question, it doesn't seem like there's much difference right now for at least the markers that were measured. But I think there, there's a good case you can make that there could be. The second element of that, which is I'm unaware of any study that's looked at this, and I think it'd be a great study for some of these groups to do, would be to say, okay, instead of just thinking about the length of the feeding window and just thinking about the time of day we place it, let's also factor in the energy distribution piece that we discussed earlier, right? So we could have, let's say, two eight-hour time-restricted feeding um, protocols. But let's say most of these trials have that evenly distributed across three meals, evenly across those eight hours. What would happen if we took most of the calories in that last meal and put them to the start and vice versa? So we're comparing two eight-hour windows, but the distribution is different between them. Would we see a difference? Similarly, if we have a shorter window, like an eight-hour window, and we compare that to something like a longer 12-hour window, but we put most of the calories in the 12-hour window earlier in the day, could that still be as good or better than that eight-hour window, right? These are all these various different combinations of things that are really hard to answer and would be really difficult to do, but are interesting questions. So as of right now, I'm uh, not too sure of the magnitude of the effect. What I would be relatively confident on of still being of the opinion is that having a lot of those calories very late in the day is probably not optimal from a metabolic health standpoint. And I think those studies that looked at, say, a delayed or a late time-restricted eating protocol, again, had evenly distributed meals across the day, as opposed to saving 80% of your calories until nine o'clock at night. So I think that may, or at least I think there's good rationale to suggest that might not be the best thing to do. Um, but there are other caveats, and I think I tried to get at this in, in the article, that if you think about the typical person that's doing a lean gains approach, or a lot of people that are using this within fitness, they are doing one big thing that a lot of people in the general population don't do as much of, and that's do plenty of resistance training, focus on being physically active, trying to attain a relatively lean body composition, all of which would mitigate a lot of the problems with poor metabolism of that meal later in the day. We could we will come to timing of training, which I, I know you want to ask about because that relates in here. But just for people to be aware, there are some caveats where it may not be as a big a problem to eat later in the day for, for several reasons. Um, but yeah, so for me, I still think skewing things slightly earlier in the day probably is better. The exact timing and cutoffs we're not so sure of. I think a simple heuristic of like trying to match up most of your intake with typical daylight hours might be good for people to go or even just trialing, okay, I'm eating like a ton of my food a couple of hours before sleep. What if I put some more of those calories a bit earlier in the day? 
do I feel better? Do I notice anything? That might be a way to go. Um, but as of right now, we're, we're still, I, I can't give you a definitive answer over how much of an impact it would have to have an early versus a slightly later uh, window. I think that was a good answer, though. It, it definitely touches on the things that can get us thinking. And unfortunately, everybody listening, if you're interested, you're going to have to probably wait a while because it takes a long time to do these type of studies. But mm. um, I also find it interesting when we look at partitioning calories towards the earlier part of the day and maybe not eating as late, just from a social and a behavioral standpoint, that can almost be difficult for people. Because I know one yeah. benefit to intermittent fasting is even for some of my clients who don't do any fasting, but they're like, oh, I have this event on Saturday. I'm like, hey, fast a little bit in the morning, have mainly protein meals throughout the day. You'll save calories. This isn't a daily habit you want to build, but it'll keep you in your calories. You can enjoy the day. Don't worry about it too much. Yep. Um, it helps. Now, the other part of it too is like, even for myself, I, I typically like having some kind of sweet at night, even if it's dark chocolate or like a healthy protein dessert. And I don't even need to be hungry. It's just mm. something that I enjoy. And um, I'm actually uh, reading through... Uh, the Hungry Brain, because I have Stephen coming on the podcast soon. And it talks a lot about these different uh, social and psychological behaviors. Um, and it's just a funny thing to point out, because I think the biggest struggle with partitioning your calories in the morning might just be that side of things for people. Right. A absolutely. And I think that was one of the things I, I tried to make a real point of acknowledging anytime I've discussed this and through through talks or even the article of look, there's several components that we know are fundamental to nutrition that you shouldn't compromise just to try some of this timing stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Overall, the quality of your diet pattern, overall, your general caloric intake as it relates to your goals, having some enjoyment in how you're going to have food, and then beyond the actual nutrition components, again, for long-term adherence and just for enjoying life, if it's going to be stuff that causes you stress or goes to throw out certain social occasions, it's not something I'd advise doing. And so having a very pragmatic way of looking at it, I would, I would give the exact same advice that you just gave there to people. There are some things that we can do generally most of the time if that works, but then there's going to be occasions where we should be still able to go out and have a late dinner with friends. We should be able to go out and have drinks with friends and go and stay up and, and wreck our circadian rhythms on that night and not stress about it because I do that. And I think there are so many intangible aspects to health that are intertwined in that, that if we look at this in a very blinkered way of what is this doing to my blood glucose response at a specific time or my circadian rhythm just on this particular day, we miss out that, hey, that social occasion, you're relaxing, you're laughing, you're bonding with friends, you have social connection, you have all these elements that tie in in a very intangible way to our overall long-term health that's really difficult to put a price on um, or, or even to quantify and measure up against if we didn't do that. So I would certainly steer away from anything that's going to make someone not be able to adhere to general nutrition principles if it's going to cause them way too much stress and also, if they're stopping themselves from doing things in life that they generally do, don't worry about it. You can do certain principles most of the time, but you can use then the knowledge you've built up, like you just said, of understanding overall energy balance and understanding how you're going to um, or play around with your food intake to say, hey, I'm going to be eating later on that day. So here's some things I can do. I can fast early in the day. I can save some of those overall calories, et cetera, et cetera. And so it almost doesn't matter if 
your metabolism of that meal isn't optimal at that one time because there's so many other benefits you're getting from that one action. So I would totally agree with that. And I think that was one of the things I tried to tie into that piece of um, think about adherence and think about enjoyment and social interaction. They're all incredibly important. Yeah. And I think it's, this is something I'd, I'm glad we touched on this uh, kind of rounding off the nutrition side of things, because it's something I talk to clients a lot about when we're implementing any type of nutrient timing. It's like, Hey, this is optimal and ideal based on your training time and your sleep patterns when you can actually plan everything in your day. But if shit goes haywire, you got to pick up the kids, your training time changes. You can only eat three meals instead of your plan for like, don't stress calories still matter. Like just, just, it's okay. Like you have yep. to understand that because those days that like, if you're doing perfect Monday through Friday, that outweighs maybe eating a later meal on Saturday because you go out and have dinner with your family or whatever it may be. Right. Um, but a lot of people hear the science, they hear the research, they hear us talk about these cool topics and they get too engulfed into it. And I think it over kind of overwhelms them or just kind of takes over everything. And it's either a, it's a all or nothing mentality in the positive or negative direction. Um, yeah. One thing I wanted you to touch on real quick, if you can, is just the idea of coffee during a, a time restricted fast. I know that um, I believe his name is Dr. Suchin Panda, or it's Panda Suchin. I, I always <laughs> flip flop. It's Suchin Panda, yeah. Okay, he has, a, he has a suit, yeah. Yeah, he has a ton of great information and, and research done on uh, time restricted feeding. And I believe it was him that said, like, even coffee in the morning, it, it basically takes you out of your fast. Like, you have to be completely fasted for this to even be in effect. What's your opinion on that? So I think the whole does black coffee knock me out of my fast is a huge question. Anytime people are doing fasting, it's like one of the most common ones I see. <laughs> and the way I typically try and say to people is it depends again, what is your objective for what you're doing? So technically, again, we, if you're looking at this from the perspective of does metabolizing caffeine have some sort of effect that is different to not having any metabolizable nutrients. So in other words, as I mentioned earlier, we see that it can have an effect circadian wise of your body is starting these processes of metabolizing that nutrient. So technically, we could say, yeah, having that coffee may be breaking the fast in, in some respect, if that's what someone is doing it for, that they want, if their sole goal is to do it of, I don't want my body to be digesting or metabolizing any nutrient, then you're kind of breaking that. But if someone is doing it, let's say, again, to control overall caloric intake, or because they find it preferential to not have a meal early in the day and save more of those calories for their meal in the middle of the day, then it doesn't matter, right? You're getting probably five, 10 calories in that coffee. doesn't matter. You can forget about that. It doesn't really matter that it's technically breaking it by your, you metabolizing it. You are doing this for the purposes of convenience and caloric restriction or allowing yourself to eat more calories in later in the day. So this isn't impacting any of those goals and objectives. So it depends on what you're doing this for and how much you actually need to care about that question and whether you yeah, whether the technical answer of does it have any impact in terms of nutrient me metabolism um, may not be relevant to what someone is using that intermittent fasting protocol for, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. That's perfect. And, and like you said, I get that question every single time intermittent fasting is brought up. So I'm glad we at least briefly touched on it. Um, I do want to be respectful of your time. So if we can touch on training real quick, that would be amazing. And just kind of, I guess, just if it has any role in the circadian biology and this whole entire topic that we're discussing, and then um, briefly just touch on the idea that it may uh, potentially mitigate the need to partition calories heavier in the morning or vice versa. 
Sure. So in terms of how circadian biology may play a role in terms of when to train and training performance, there is some literature on this, but I'm definitely not as familiar with with that. And there's definitely better people to look at it. But for example, you may see certain changes in core body temperature across the day. And then theoretically, you could say, well, 4 to 5 p.m. in the evening is the optimal time to train. But again, pragmatically, how much does that matter? Probably not that much, I would say. But again, there's probably people better versed to talk on that. So I think for me, where I tended to focus the training discussion is that that may mitigate a lot of the issues we talked about with poor carbohydrate metabolism late in the day. So we know our insulin sensitivity is worse late in the day. So if we have a large carb meal in the evening, we're going to have a greater glucose excursion than if we had that meal earlier in the day. However, one of the cool things about exercise and particularly resistance training is that we it causes the movement of a certain glucose transporter called a GLUT4 transporter to move from inside a muscle cell to the surface of that cell. And what that glucose transporter does is allows glucose to move from the bloodstream into a muscle cell. Now, usually the movement of glucose from the blood into a muscle cell is mediated by the action of insulin. That's one of the things insulin does. We release insulin, comes along, tells the cell, hey, we've got lots of glucose around. We're going to store some of it in this cell. So it helps us put some of that glucose into muscle, and that's what brings our blood glucose back down to normal. However, if we're more insulin resistant or we're less insulin sensitive in the evenings, then this causes a problem of trying to get that glucose into a muscle cell. That's why it stays higher for longer. However, with this GLUT4 translocation, as it's called, or these glucose transporters coming to the surface of the cell, they don't require insulin to move some of that glucose into the cell. So we can start pushing some of that glucose from the blood into that muscle cell after doing resistance training, even when we're more insulin resistant. And so that's why it might offset that usually we might have this greater blood glucose response in the evening. But if we've done some resistance training in the hours leading up to that, then having some carbohydrates afterwards probably isn't going to be the same problem because we can actually effectively shuttle that glucose into muscle cell, no problem. So it may not influence totally from like a timing perspective because that food will still entrain or set those circadian clocks. But from the glucose perspective, it definitely would mitigate that big glucose excursion we might see if we hadn't done any exercise and particularly done some resistance training. So I think for a lot of people who typically do that, and let's say they do their training session in the late afternoon or evening, and then they come home and say, oh, I heard Danny talk about circadian stuff. I shouldn't eat any carbs. It's like That's not what I'm saying at all. And beyond that, you're probably perfectly primed to be able to handle those carbohydrates because you've done some resistance training at that time point. So I think that's one of those important caveats that I like to mention. Yeah, that's perfect. And I think uh, I'll link this in the show notes for people, but one person that has written on this, uh, the timing of training quite a bit is Menno Henselman. And he can be very, very convincing with uh, the way he reviews research. So if you read his article, like you will be convinced that you need to change your training time <laughs> right away. Yeah and, yeah. and he uses a lot of good research in it, but just, just take into consideration that even I would even say significant differences shown in research, it still comes back down to adherence and what you can consistently do because right. if it's screwing with other factors of your nutrition, your sleep, your circadian biology, your stress, your lifestyle, it's not worth it. It's not a big enough difference. So you just have to take that into effect. But um, Danny, like I said, I want to respect your time. I appreciate you coming on so much, man. This has been an amazing podcast. I think Thank I, you, man. I, 
I don't know if this is a fact, um, but for all the podcasts I've listened to interviewing you, I will say that I think this is the best chrono nutrition podcast you've done. You've really like kind of covered every spectrum of it. And I think so much, man. Such a great job explaining it. I'm going to link the, I I believe you have a download link on your website where people can actually access your lecture on this um, from the ultimate uh, evidence-based conference, as well as your article that just went out. I'll link your podcast. Is there anything else you want the listeners to go check out or, or tune into? Yeah, no, like you said, I think everything should be uh, accessible on just the website. So sigmanutrition.com, you can find the article, you can find uh, the lecture. It's, it's also freely available on YouTube for that people can click through there as well. And if they're into podcasts, Sigma Nutrition Radio. And then you're yeah, happy to take any questions or comments on social media as well. They'll find me on Instagram, uh, Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. And then pretty much any of the other places as well, just bang in my name and they should be able to find me there. Love it. I'm going to link all that in the show notes, man. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, man. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering. And because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.